Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we are back. We are doing it again. Uh, doing it again. Health has returned. Folks, guys, gals, non-binary pals, it's back. We're, we're, we have vigor and vim uh, and, and no lingering month-long colds that were, let's be real, probably COVID. Uh, although I did get tested and it said I was negative. So fuck if I know anymore. This is... I- I was going to say, I made sure to get tested. I was not going to go running around, folks, not getting tested. And, and mine was negative, but it, it was not fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not a great. But that said, COVID, COVID is, and, and I'm not, okay, so. Hold on, before you start. <laughs> concerning before you thing. Start, okay. This is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. Yes. My name is David, David. Let's talk about COVID. Okay. So, um, number one. Okay, when I took a test, I went to the testing center and got a PCR test. That's why I'm confident in my test. I will say, at-home tests are better than absolutely nothing. And, um, you know, when you get an at-home test and it says positive, there's not really, like, false positives, right? Um, But those at-home tests, if they're not PCR are not always accurate on their negatives. No, 100%. It, it has a margin for error. Uh, it has a margin for error, inclusive of the fact that you need to test nose and throat on those tests versus, you know, the PCR, you can just get your brain Exactly. Pumped. So, um, and, and people don't know to test throat. They only know to test nasal. Um, so there's probably more COVID out there than people even realize, especially with stuff depending on the self-test. And especially because and you can't so even if get you, the fucking self-test if you wanted it at this point. So who fucking yeah, knows? And, yeah, and, and of course the lines for COVID testing are absurd, mm-hmm. right? Um, just, I, I mean, anywhere you go, there's there's huge waits. Um, you know, St. Louis area here, there's huge waits from, you know, downtown to Kirkwood to everywhere um, mm-hmm. around here. So, this is is pretty big um, issue, and I can't imagine it being much different in the rest of the country. Um, that said, uh, COVID is getting super terrifying out there obviously the the government is doing nothing the cdc has backtracked and said like well okay they want you back to work after positive tests after five days and they don't want you taking a second test after five days but if you do and it's positive you should avoid shopping and stay home and it's like what the fuck does that mean (laughs) wait a minute how does that like what if i was positive and didn't take that second test Uh what the fuck Uh what 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 the hell does that mean? Five what days kind of bullshit no, is that? Five days, no second test. Yeah, it, 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 absolute meaninglessness. Absolute just yeah, just, it's just garbage. It's just please close your eyes and run headlong into the fire and then tell each other everything is okay. But obviously, if you know it's not, I mean, act like it's not. And we didn't tell you to be unsafe. Just you know, I mean, m- maybe be a little unsafe. You know, I, whatever. Just for, a pandemic for the economy. That's, that's the CDC stance. Yeah, Do for the economy. Part for right. The economy. Yeah, this is like like Starship Troopers. I'm doing my part. Uh, (laughs) Buy war bonds, but instead of buying war bonds, you're getting COVID. Yeah, exactly. One hundred percent. And and that's something that, of course, is, you know, is a big deal. And we should recognize as workers, you have people are still going to talk about like employment crisis, employment crisis. And there's there's several factors to that. Right. There's the fact that people are just dead. 
They yeah, can't yeah, fill dead. the spots. They are dead. They're very yeah. dead. And that's incredibly tragic. But we have to be clear about that and stop denying that. Hundreds of thousands of people are dead because our government, mainly, not just the government as a separate institution, we know as communists, the capitalist class and the government that they conduct that pretends to be for the people but only serves them has sent us to die for profits by the hundreds of thousands. It is a genocide for profit with the only targeted group being anyone who makes capitalist money, right? That's what it fucking is. It's a monstrosity. And this is separating from the the millions killed across the global south from the lack of trips waiver, too. Okay, so let's be clear about that. The other working shortage thing is people, understandably, are realizing their power as less, less workers are out there. And, of course, people are afraid to work uh, under these conditions. And that's all kind of amalgamating to way less people working and people quitting, which is good and take back worker power. It's also probably not happening by the tens of millions. It's probably like a couple million. And the insane tens of millions of of unemployed people is probably abuse by employers to scam PPP loans because basically the loans were designed to be scammed. Oh, right? Yeah. They were the, they they just like say you're you're searching for a hundred employees and bang we'll give you a loan saying you're trying to turn a profit. That's all the proof we need. Here's your loan. Pay it off as you can or we'll default or whatever the fuck. Oh, they company. forgave. Oh, cool. yeah. They forgave a fuckload of it. Like that's yeah. That's the other thing is it's like oh no it's all forgiven. All forgiven. Student loans no impossible. No, can't no. forgive those. Could not forgive those. But PP, PPP loans. Yeah. And you have to prove it's something like you have to improve your business is growing or you're you're like gaining you're benefiting the economy or something like that. And so you have to prove that you're searching to, to hire people and you can just bullshit that and throw it into the paperwork. And then it's in these numbers. So most of these numbers are inflated loan scam bullshit. But an immense amount is people either being dead or recognizing their power. Um, and so, you know, of course, that's going on there. The numbers are ballooning. We There's a record with a million cases and in, 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 in one day. And that's an alarming number and it should be an alarming number and people go well they were catching up from the holidays well that's true but those are cases that should have been peppered across the holidays and that's within a week a million cases in a week is a big fucking deal and there were still cases recorded and we were still breaking records like before that with these other in the million left out so Mm -hmm. break record break record break record catch up to all the the cases you didn't count on the record-breaking days to make a million cases plus what had turned up positive in the last week one out of every 350 people were tested positive and it went into the registry just that day and then there was basically the same you know several thousands spread out throughout the week in addition and this is all within a week, right? So if you if you met 300 people in your life, not a crazy amount for most people to know, you know, th- one of them is going to be positive according to these numbers, just straight up, mm-hmm. right? I mean, end of the day. Um, so just alarming fucking numbers and and a huge, huge infrastructure failure for the sake of profit, as all infrastructure failures are. Speaking of infrastructure speak- failures, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hello, listeners in Virginia. Uh, I hope sincerely that you are not. Uh, at the time of this recording, there are still uh, 
thousands of people, to my knowledge, stuck on I-95. Yeah, for 24 hours by now, it's yeah, got to exactly. be probably we're on, more. We're recording this on January 4th. Um, yeah. So so I know that they're there. Hopefully, God will. I mean, I, I, I'm sure, God willing, that everything has been cleared by now by the time you're hearing this. Um but for those that were not paying attention to U.S. news for any reason, uh, there was a uh, entire highway that got shut down with people trapped on it for yes. days. Yes, and we we've talked about before, like the snow can trap you on the highway. I've been trapped on for mm-hmm. for you know nine hours before, and and it was not fun, right? I had a a baby, you know, making a mess um, from from bodily fluids and couldn't get home to to help my wife with that, and I was stuck for like nine hours on the interstate in the snow not moving yep. and it's scary because you're thirsty and you're hungry and you wonder how you're going to get home and how you're going to keep up your gas and how you're going to stay warm and this was far longer than that for far more people and it's you know it was much more in the middle of nowhere where like i was thinking about you know walking home myself for survival and it was okay when does it get to the point for survival and when is it leaving too early and having to figure out how the hell to get my car back when they tow it and for these people there's that conundrum except it's leaning way more towards survival very rapidly and everyone leans forward towards survival for that's another car stuck on the road in the way when they try to move them for the other people that that can't make that choice you know that that maybe have trouble getting out and walking um or you know maybe you're in a worse spot and yeah i mean just terrible terrible and of course you know not that passing the the incredibly self-sabotage intra-party sabotaged bill because it, let's face it if if Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin didn't fail it if they had five more votes they'd find five more people to fail it it was always going to fail the they entire will. system is rigged against us but Joe Biden's infrastructure that he ran on uh, was always going to be inadequate was always going to be just uh, garbage right just absolute garbage and it was not going to do anything for most of our main causes like worker empowerment anti-imperialism blah 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 but would have actually helped people badly. Like would have, again, like, like so many band-aid liberal supposed progressive policies would have actually done something substantially helpful for people as needed. And just like all those other policies, it can't happen. It sank. And the manifestation of obsessing with cars over public transportation, something that still badly needs to change in this world uh, by building out highways, basically a hundred year project in the United States uh, at the behest of, of car companies against public transportation is, uh, is is coming to fruition along with you know the failed infrastructure that always fails is coming to fruition and people are stuck stranded out to die on these highways instead of just getting home for the night or getting yep. to work and this is going to only be exacerbated by climate change it's only going to get exacerbated mm-hmm. by further further decay of capitalism as it continues to to kind of cannibalize itself um there is never going to be they're they're not going to fix this. They're they're not. Um, no, I mean how how they're acting with COVID, how they're acting with infrastructure, how they've always acted towards the global south mm-hmm. is exactly how you, you, they're going to act with climate change. Oh, right. For sure. I mean, we've already, they've already said it's a national security issue, even when they take it seriously at all. And they point to like 2050 and, and all the rich people are like building these. We talked about like building like, you know, trying to launch life on Mars as if like, okay, so let's spend a bunch of resources so that only rich people can go to a planet with no resources. If you can make something that's self-sustaining, you would just make it here. Well, that's exactly what they're doing, right? They're saying like, yeah. oh, we're just going to kill everyone for profit. And when we fucked that up, we're going to like build some kind of 
self-sustaining biome fantasy land. Claim it was always for this Mars development. So, you know, maybe to tell ourselves that. Maybe we th- really think they're going to Mars or or maybe, you know, we know better and we know it's a bunch of bullshit. <clears throat> but to give ourselves like a wealthy, like luxury out while everyone else is suffering and dying Mad Max style. You know, they're preparing us for death the way they they've always genocided the global south the way they're handling covid they and and again this is the problem with capitalist realism and turning into climate change realism and turning into covid realism. realism these are not absolutes these are not truism truisms these are not something nature has bestowed upon you unavoidably these are conscious decisions by people that can be changed but the people in power have interest in not changing them and so they will only be changed if those people lose power and are replaced in power by people who have interest in changing these things namely all of us in the entirety of the global south absolutely that is why we work towards revolution and a great way to learn about ways that this isn't always the case and that there are ways to change it is by reading theory and reading other works by uh, by by theorists, historians, and, and, and the such. And, and that's ostensibly what this show does. So we're going to start doing that today. Uh, so starting at uh, – we're starting on in neocolonialism. Uh, sorry. For the record this time, guys, we're using Kindle because we're bad people. Um, and, and it was just the easiest format to get this book in. Uh, and so we are, we are using that, which is why we don't have page numbers because we have these stupid Bezos location numbers. So we have not been reading out page numbers this time. I apologize. Uh, next book we get, I will make sure we have page numbers again so that we can go back to that. Um, but starting, uh, at operating deposits on the Lubalash River in the Congo, which produce mainly industrial diamonds and crushing borat, Becca has a subsidiary, Societe Becca Manganese, working manganese deposits near a Congolese railway junction. At the beginning of 1962, Becca Manganese established a 500 million franc subsidy, Societe Minerae de Kasinga, in which it is the chief shareholder. Kasinga has received a certain com- com- concessionary and exploitation rights from Becca Manganese, which also participated in October 1962 in the creation of Societe Europeenne des Derives du Manganese, SEDMA. The main parties to the formation of SEDMA are associates of Societe de Enterprise de Investments, Dubeca, Cybeca, and the Manganese Chemicals Corporation of the USA. From the report of the Societe Generale for 1962, a directing hand behind all the segmentation, it emerges that an extraordinary meeting of Becca on 21st of March 1962 agreed that Becca should renounce in favor of a new company, Societe Minerale de Bacangua. Bakwanga, sorry. All its mining rights in the Congo, mainly in the Bakwanga region, should become the Societe de Enterprise et de Investments du Becca, to be known by its abbreviated form, Cybeca. The purpose of Cybeca was reformed to cover the investigation, promotion, and financing by whatever means in Belgium as well as in the Congo and other foreign countries of all kinds of enterprises, whether in mining, industry, commerce, agriculture, or transport, especially those having connection with mineral substances of all kinds, as well as with their derivatives and substitutes. That seems wildly broad. Yeah. Wildly broad. Within the framework of this new objective, the former participations were increased and new participations were taken up or were in the course of examination. In particular, certain ones having to do with the production of artificial diamonds. Oh, no. 
De Beers will be unhappy to hear about this. They'll be, they'll be so, but people love natural diamonds, Nathan. De Beers, De Beers is a great source for the survey. To anyone who didn't see it, there was a tweet where they were like, artificial diamonds don't bring it, people joy, essentially. It wasn't just a tweet. It's, it's something that, that the economist has, used before in articles and they just threw it straight out to social media this time ah uh basically the they said artificial diamonds are bad natural diamonds are great and their source for that claim was de beers which as if you've been reading this should be obvious it it also clearly says they elicit emotions it doesn't say positive it doesn't say negative it doesn't say the methodology it doesn't say how people would tell the difference which again except for a very specific mark the only way to tell a difference is because uh man-made diamonds lack the flaws of natural diamonds how dare they lack flaws um it just says they elicit more emotions and you're supposed to read that and go oh man-made diamonds suck and that's not i have the case. 10 more i have 10 more happiness emotions <laughs> because of this diamond right especially since that reposits the diamond are for decoration and jewelry when the only reason they're even valuable is because they're such a hardened uh uh, uh i can't think of the word rock uh, um <laughs> David once said that gold was a very hard mineral. David is not a geologist, ladies and gentlemen. Let's yes, let's get it very clear. Um, for you know, I mean, diamond tip saws, all, all kinds of things like that, right? And and again, man made is is outstanding for that. They want you to fully think of diamond as decorative jewelry and better with flaws, so that they can make money yeah. off slave labor. Oh, of course. Yeah. The principal activity of Cybeca, however, is to be its important participation in Societe Mineral de Bacangua. Bakwanga, God damn it, I'm going to get that one right one of these days, known as Miba. Miba's production in 1961, its first year of working, was nearly 15 million carats of diamonds, which the chairman of Societe Generale considered should be its normal rhythm, having regard to the selling market. Cybeca has been busy in South Kasai, where other investments have been placed, including the modernization of a 150-kilometer road from Bakwanga to the station of Mueneditu. Societe Generale's participation in Cybeca stands at 525,000 shares of no par value, and it has assisted Becca Manganese to place 10 million francs out of the 11 million francs it has been allotted in the 81 million franc capital of Sedima. Cybeca has taken up another 10 million francs. The object of Sedima is the manufacture of manganese composites and manganese metals for the European market. It is not long before any endeavor to trace the companies engaged in a particular field of mining leads into associations connecting with other sectors of raw material production. Thus, our examination of the De Beers diamond enterprises has taken us into the ever vaster world of Societe Generale's interests, which we shall meet again more than once in the course of our journeying through the tangled maze of international control of Africa's basic riches. Oh, De Beers... Oh, De Beers. It is also significant that in almost every corner we find lurking some coupling with American major industrial concerns. In the present case, Manganese Chemicals Corporation comes immediately and directly into the picture. Looking further into African diamond production, we find another Societe Generale offshoot operating in the Congo. Societe Generale Forestiquaire et Minerai du Congo, previously known as Forminier, concerns itself with mining, commercial, industrial, and agricultural pursuits, chiefly in Kasai, its main preoccupation in diamond mining. 
Fournier is one of King Leopold's original main concessions in the Congo. Oh, good. He's back. Welcome back, King Leo, you fucking genocidal maniac. He formed the company in 1906 with the help of, among others, two American businessmen, Thomas F. Fortune and Daniel Guggenheim. Okay, Thomas F. Fortune is a little too on the goddamn nose. I'm just saying it right now. It's a little too on the goddamn nose. The last of whom built up a fortune for mining in South America. Today, Fournier is part of the vast complex dominated by Societe Generale, Tanganyika Concessions, and its child, Union Minerai de Haute Katanga, which has been the Congo's economic life in the palm of its which has the Congo's economic life in the palm of its hand, and is now greedily extended to Angola and Mozambique. Through its subsidiary, Societe Internationale Commerciale et Financière de la Fournier, Interfor, it has sister interests with Becca in a number of agricultural companies working plantations in the Congo on a grand scale. Other holdings held by Fournier are in mining companies such as Societe de Recherches et Exploration des Bauxites du Congo, Boxa Congo. That's a fa- that's a fun punchy yeah, name there, Boxicongo. Featured also in Union Minerais' lengthy list of more important interests. Oil is also included in the Societe Generale's empire through Societe de Research de Explorations des Petroles, Socorp. Uh, this is among Fournier's investments. David, I'm sick of reading French names. Can you do it for a minute? Uh, the Diamond Corporation acts as the rallying center for the merchandise offered for sale by all the large producers. In its role as the central buying organization for the international procurers of diamonds, it is not surprising that it should have to share in some of the most important producing companies outside of South African group. Uh, Monsignors H.F. Oppenheimer and H.J. Joel of its own directorate are seated at the board on the Angola Diamond Company, Campania de Diamantes de Angola, another two members of which, Monsignors Albert E. Teal, I guess? I don't know. Yeah, that's not spelled like Peter Teal, but I'm still going with Teal. Okay, yeah. And A.A. Ryan adorned the Formanier board. Mr. Teal has important connections with certain powerful American groups. He began his career in 1909 with the Guggenheim brothers, one of whom was so helpful to Leopold II. Mm, He's back again, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thence he graduated to chairmanship of the Pacific Tin Consolidated Corporation and the director directorates of the Kennecott Copper Corporation and a subsidiary, Braden Copper Company. Oil and nitrates are also Mr. Teal's business. Maracaibo Oil and Barber Oil are numbered among his directorships as our Chilean Nitrate Sales Corporation and the chairmanship of Feldspar Corporation. As a director of the Angola Diamond Formanier, he has most certainly not innocently strayed from his basic moorings. Anchored in Guggenheim, Kennecott Copper, Oil, Tin, and Nitrates, in which the Morgans have their helping hand. The Morgan Guarantee Trust is one of the main arteries from which flows finance for the Oppenheimer Combines. Morgan is also in association with the Banque Belge and the leading banking string of the Société Générale structure. <coughs> And the biggest bank in Belgium, represented on the Angola Diamond Board, is another Angola concern, Campania de Pescas Minerais de Angola. Angola Diamonds has monopoly rights, permitting it to work for diamonds for almost 390,000 square miles of Angola, in an area almost four times the size of Ghana or Great Britain. 43 mines are in operation. Three new ones have been opened to replace three whose reserves are running out. 
Prospecting is going on for further deposits, 19 groups being at work. Direct interest in the company registered in Portugal is held by the Angola government and on-the-spot administrative arm of the Portuguese government. It holds 200,000 shares, slightly in excess of the 198,800 held by Societe Generale. About half the African workers for the company are forced laborers rounded up by authorities and receiving a monthly wage of about 70 escudos, equivalent about 16 shillings. Jesus the Christ. Very hands- yeah, no, just pittance, absolute pittance. Uh, the very handsome profits of the company are divided equally between the province of Angola and the shareholders after 6% has been allocated to the managing bodies. Gee, I wonder why Angola was a site for so much revolutionary fervor. Yeah, you don't say. Uh, shareholders' profit at the end of trading 1960 was 137 million escudos. After the same amount had been reserved for the Angola province and 15 million escudos for legal reserve, total profits, in fact, amounted to 289 million escudos, of which 114.8 million escudos had come from profits held in reserve. Interim and final dividends absorbed a sum of the year of 1960 of 136.67 million escudos. Excuse me. The company pays no import duties on plant or material and no duties on diamonds exported. It also enjoys a loan from the Angola government of 100 million escudos in return for the free issue of 100,000 shares of 170 escudos each of the province of Angola in 1955. So, again, it's just no tariffs. No, no, nothing goes to the Angola government. But it gets a loan out from the, the government. They have to loan <laughs> them out. Um, and so they just get to take the government's money without paying any of it back except in loan interest, I guess. And the government gets uh, shares. The, the government's return yeah. for this is they get shares in the company. Yeah, they get shares in the company. So the company has to be proud. So now the government getting almost nothing out of this, the little bit they got out of it, they, they have, you know, immense investment in the company's success. So when the company comes in conflict with the country, uh, they've still, for the sake of the country, have to pick the company or they're mm-hmm. screwed financially. Yep. The unheard of uneconomic rate of interest on this loan is 1%. Repayments to be completed in 1971. So it's a 30-year 1% loans. Very fucking favorable conditions. Yeah, that's Angola insane. Diamond, yeah, no, just bananas. Angola Diamond Company holds 16,200 or 16.266% of the issued capital of society of Sociedade Portuguesa de Lapideco de Diamantes. Diamond Corporation has contractual arrangements for purchase of Angola Diamond's output, which has recently been running over a million carats and is estimated to give even higher yields. Since mechanical excavators and washing of plant have been installed, following proof of extensive alluvial deposits, gem diamonds represent 65% of the output. Diamond Corporation has broken into the Ivory Coast with the formation of local subsidiary to purchase diamonds on the open market of that country. How open market will be is anybody's guess. Some of the other newly independent African countries are striving to break away from Diamond Corporation domination. Ghana has set up its own diamond market in Accra, and all sellers, including Consolidated African Selection Trust Limited, CAST, working an 68-square-mile concession to the Aiken Abakwa district, must sell through it. Sierra Leone Selection Trust Limited is CAST subsidiary operating in Sierra Leone. So basically, he's saying, you know, Ghana has has taken control of their own diamond market and made sure everything goes through them. But otherwise, 
these are free markets. The, the countries are bullied by the companies, right? And Ghana, of course, is not financially stable enough to just make the companies totally dependent on it, but it's taking some of that back. It's making sure it at least has the control of the financial flow. Exactly. Uh, incredible. Incredible as it may sound, Sierra Leone's selection once held exclusive diamond mining rights over practically the whole of the country. In 1955, following protestations from the people, especially in the rich diamond region of Konar, the extent of its concession was reduced to some 209 square miles, then the extent of the company's existing working. The curtailment of rights, however, was more apparent than real. The concessionary rights are for 30 years, but restricted rights were granted over a further 250 square miles, of which 100 have been since taken up. The company is also allowed to prospect for deep deposits of mines anywhere in Sierra Leone for a period of not less than 10 years to mine them. So again, the diamond company's just fair game throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Um, that the agreement was a sham is provided by the undertaking given by the then colonial government not to grant before 1975 to any applicants other than Sierra Leoneans or companies in which the beneficiary's interest or greater part of it is held by Sierra Leoneans. Any diamond prospecting licenses or leases without first offering such licenses or leases to Sierra Leone Selection Trust. Though this virtually gives a free hand to the company, the government nevertheless made it a payment of 1.5 million pounds to compensate for supposedly lost opportunities. So basically, Jesus Christ. The, the company has exclusive rights to anything that doesn't go to locals. The locals only get what the company doesn't want. And because the locals can get some, the company's getting 1.5 million pounds from the government for, oh, the locals might have an opportunity that's taken away from you. We're sorry. Yeah. All, all the 6 million shares issued out of the 6.4 million authorized to make up the capital of 1.6 million pounds are held by cast. What profits the company makes are not publicly known since accounts are issued only to shareholders. Jesus. The chairman of both cast and Sierra Leone selection, Mr. A. Chester Beatty, who has colleagues on both boards of Monsignor's E.C. Wharton Tegar, T.H. Bradford, and P.J. Oppenheimer. Mr. P.J. Oppenheimer also sits on the board of Diamond Corporation along uh, with Mr. W.A. Chapel, who is another colleague on the cast board. Both these gentlemen sit on the London Mine Committee of De Beers Consolidated Mines. Mr. P.J. Oppenheimer also occupying a seat on the Johannesburg Committee, on which he's associated with Major General I.P. De Villiers, C.B., and Mr. A. Wilson, the last named two being joined together on the directorate of the Consolidated Diamond Mines of Southwest Africa Limited. So again, it's the same guys reshuffled on the board of director for all of these companies. Every right? single one of them. And, and you're seeing here, you know, I mean, this is really like these are guys that are high ranking in De Beers. These are guys that are high ranking uh, in Johannesburg Committee. These are guys that are high ranking in Consolidated Diamond Mines. All of these companies are basically the same even when they're technically different companies because they're all run by the same people. And then, of course, the technically different companies still really have monopoly power. So it's a monopoly one way and a monopoly another way. Exactly. Mr. Thomas Horat Bradford represents Selection Trust Limited, of which he is managing director on its main associated companies in America, the Rhodesias, Canada, and Venezuela. Mr. Beatty keeps company with Mr. Bradford on several of these boards. Mr. Chappell's connection with the diamond world is on a decidedly high level, if we may judge from his directorship of the bank Diamond Tier and Vesois SA Antwerp, which is still the world's major diamond cutting center, employing over 13,000 people in the industry. 
the Antwerp Diamond Bank occupies an important strategic position. Something like 40,000 to 50,000 carats are cut in Antwerp every week. The bulk of the rust stones coming from the Diamond Trading Company at the London end of the De Beers Central Selling Organization. But Antwerp searches other sources for its diamond suppliers and in 1961 got as much as 30% of its total weight in carats elsewhere. It is only too obvious that Mr. A. Chester Beatty moves among the exalted ranks of the diamond world, especially that preponderant sector of it dominated by the De Beers Group and pivoted around the Diamond Corporation and its selling organization. It is therefore difficult to understand the play that Mr. Beatty made in connection with Sierra Leone government bill passed towards the end of 1961, obliging all producers of diamonds in the Sierra Leone to sell through the government diamond office. Mr. Beatty, as chairman of the Selection Trust Limited, as well as CAST and Sierra Leone Selection, its subsidiary, asserted that the expired contract that CAST had with the Diamond Corporation had not been renewed because of the excessive commission of 12% demanded by it. CAST had offered 4%, which had been rejected. A contract was therefore made with Harry Winston, Inc. of New York, owners and cutters of the famed Jonker Diamond, who were said to be looking for a direct source of supply which would sidestep the Diamond Corporation in view of the interconnection between Selection Trust and De Beers companies, including the Diamond Corporation, through interdependent shareholdings as well as directional directorial interweaving. It is strange to witness one of the most prominent links in the chain, Mr. Chester A. Ba- Mr. A. Chester Beatty, protesting his anxiety is to protect Sierra Leone's interest against the corporation, of which he is very much a part. The protest for Mr. Beatty was that if Sierra Leone's selection were obliged to submit its production to the government's diamond office, this would ultimately go to the Diamond Corporation, which was the diamond office's end purchaser, precisely what he was fighting against. Moreover, this would mean serving the contract with Winston, for which breach compensation would have to be made. Severing the contract. This would mean severing the contract with Winston, for which breach compensation would have to be made. Mr. Beatty pointed out that his solicitude for Sierra Leone's welfare had caused him to secure a revaluation of the Diamond Corporation contract in 1957, so that an additional 2.7 million pounds had been received in the last three years of operation. So there is a little bit here that... Oh, I was going to say there's a little bit here that we're we're kind of peeling back on why Mr. Beatty would have an issue with this when he is on the board of directors of the Diamond Corporation, uh, which you know as we said is is a De Beers subsidiary. And of course, what was the the directorial interweaving? Was that the term of all these guys being directors on all these you know that other form of monopoly we talked about? Directorial interweaving. I like that term. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also kind of funny because it it basically explicitly said like, hey, if it goes through Sierra Leone, if it goes through the government. It primarily supports this company, right? The things that go through the government are directly supported through these private monopolistic contracts to these Western corporations. So even when you go through the government, you're still going straight to Western corporations. And there's kind of an admission built in there. There is a curious twist here. For Mr. Beatty asserts that 500,000 pounds more in revenue would be received by the Sierra Leone government under the Winston contract than under the one concluded with Diamond Corporation. Four pertinent questions arise from this. What increased percentage of revenue was represented by the additional 2.7 million pounds Mr. Beatty said was obtained from the Diamond Corporation on the last three years of the expired contract? How much of this came into the hands of the Sierra Leone government? And what increased percentage of revenue did it represent for the government? How is it that Mr. Beatty could not obtain similarly advantageous terms from a new contract with Diamond Corporation? Is the 8% better price from Winston actually reflected in this estimate of some 500,000 pounds additional revenue for the government that would accrue from a contract with Winston? 
But is not all this just a facade aimed at maintaining the fiction that Selection Trust and Diamond Corporation are unrelated entities? A fiction retailed even by a press one would assume knows better. For we have the Freetown correspondent of West Africa declaring in that journal's issue of 27 January 1962 that the two European giants in the diamond industry, Diamond Corporation and Selection Trust, were clearly at loggerheads. The heart of the matter really lies in Mr. Beatty's complaint that the Sierra Leone government regulation interferes with his company's freedom, expressly laid down by the former colonial government in their concession agreement to sell as they think fit. Mr. Beatty, like the monopolistic interest he represents so efficiently on many boards, does not wish to recognize the winds of change that have come with African independence, giving the new nations the opportunity to order their economies in the way they consider more beneficial for their own good. Intrusion. How dare yeah. you act as a government for the benefit of your, your people? people. Yeah. You are supposed to serve for our profits. Honor our How contracts that were made with another government that's not you that was overthrown because it was unjust and unjustifiable. Uh, still honor all those old contracts. Yeah, yeah. Something that colonial powers have been doing since what France did to Haiti for daring to have independence. Yeah, this is baked. This is supposedly baked into investing, by the way. The concept of international risk or governmental risk is absolutely a risk baked into investing, where you acknowledge that if a government were to overthrow or topple or or collapse in any meaningful way, you would lose your investment. It's supposedly baked into the equation. And yet they're doing everything they can to eliminate anything that is that is risk to their well, entire we, operation so i mean we saw this with the bailouts in 2008 and 2019 and and people probably don't know enough that the bailouts happened in 2019 it just got swept under the rug because it wasn't interesting it was all about china bad then and and of course then covid took over but um any of these bailouts this is exactly what happens right and and so of course this is what's going to happen internationally is these banks these wealthy these powerful they of course do all this quote unquote risk because they're just wanting to expand profits and they're rich and powerful, but they tell you that they're taking on all the risk. They deserve this money. They deserve this power because they're willing to take on the risk and you can't take on that risk and that allows them to take on the risk. And then when the consequences of that risk happen, the rest of us, when we do take risk or when someone else screws us over and there was no risk and we get fucked by the system, pay all the consequences. But then when it's time to actually pay the piper on the consequences of their risk, the worst that they do is merge. Usually they just flat out expect someone to fix it for them. Because they're too big to fail, yeah. and that's exactly what fucking happens. Reminds me of that meme of the what me reaping? Ha ha ha! Yeah, this is awesome. Me sowing? Oh fuck! Oh no! Oh god! Yeah, yeah. Except except when the big banks say, you know, me sowing, they go fuck this. No, we're yeah. not paying that. Exactly. <laughs> they uh, stiff the world. Exactly. Intrusion into the diamond field has been made lately by a Texan, oh, that bodes well, who has more <laughs> usually appeared wherever oil was bubbling. Mr. Sam Collins has put a, a Texan who chases oil. That bodes even better. A Texan who chases oil getting into the diamond industry. This this will end well. Yeah. Mr. Sam Collins has put his hands to gathering diamonds from the seabed of the Chamis Reef on the southwest African coast, reported to contain a minimum reserve of 14 million carats. Mr. Collins scouted round for additional capital for his Sea Diamonds company, holding the operating company Marine Diamonds. It was reported that Mr. Oppenheimer, after watching his activities with some concern, decided to collaborate with Mr. Collins, as you do. It would appear the General Mining and Finance Corporation and Anglo Transvaal Consolidated, which we have have already met as part of the Anglo-American complex had engaged themselves in the venture. 
They were to make available additional funds up to 500,000 pounds to equalize with a like amount to be put up by Mr. Collins and the companies controlled by him. General Mining has an exchange of shares with Anglo-American, and De Beers Consolidated Mines is among its portfolio of investments, as is the National Finance Corporation of South Africa, which is so helpful to a number of Oppenheimer companies in the matter of loans. De Beers apparently has set an option on 25% of C. Diamond's equity and a first refusal on Mr. Collins' holdings said to be at about 80%. C. Diamond's, in turn, holds some 44% of the share of capital of Marine Diamonds, General Mining holding 25% of the balance, Anglo Transvaal 16%, and another Oppenheimer company, Middle Winter Water Sand, Western Areas Limited, and administered by Anglo Transvaal 7.5%. The remainder is held by the original concession holders. Middle Wit Watersand has a right of 10% participation in any prospecting ventures undertaken by Angloval Rhodesian Exploration Limited, of whose equity 50% is held by Kennecott Copper. Everything seems to move around in a circular motion within a ring that has no end. Mr. Sam Collins may have acted quickly and shrewdly in staking his claim to an offshore diamond reef, and he will in all probability make a killing. But the greatest winners will certainly prove in the long run to be Mr. Oppenheimer and his cohorts. The backstage going-ons to obtain control of what promises to be a most highly profitable venture prompted the economist's Johannesburg correspondent to observe that the full story of recent negotiations, if it ever emerged, might tell of a fierce struggle for control between South Africans mining magnates in the best tradition of the rough, tough early days of Kimberly and and the Rand. I don't get that reference at all, but I don't care. No, yeah. Um, but I mean, again, and, and like he describes it going round and round in a ring, you know, this is exactly what you're looking at you know, is what always is going to stay true is most people in the world won't benefit or, or, or be hurt. The colonized people of a certain region, a certain industry will be deeply hurt and screwed over and put to brutal work. And then a few Western people who were, you know, maybe middle class or, or upper class and shrewd will be able to get blatantly rich about upon it and even then even when you're shooting yourself up in the market what's really going to happen is the old money is just going to guzzle that up by doing nothing right they sit back they watch you and they go oh you're a threat to our monopoly all right we won't just you know absorb you when you die we'll buy you up right now and that's it and so that no matter what they just profit and they monopolize and monopolize and monopolize yep it is, it is unlikely that to be. I'm going to finish this chapter. This is Fine. the end of the chapter. Give it to me. Fine. It is unlikely that the beers will be able to make its way into the Japanese company now setting up plant in Japan for the manufacture of synthetic diamonds, which will initially turn out 300,000 carats a year to reach 600,000 annually. De Beers, in association with Societe Minerale de Becca, have their own plant in South Africa for the manufacture of synthetic diamond grit operated by ultra high pressure units. General Electric of America also has a process for turning out manufactured diamonds. The Japanese say theirs is not the same. And we have referred earlier on to Sybeka's interest in the possibility of producing artificial diamonds. There have been several attempts to create diamonds by a factory process, but they have, until now, proved somewhat uneconomic. With the strong likelihood that synthetic stones, which can compete in price and performance with the natural product, will soon be produced, another blow may be struck at the developing producer countries of Africa. And that ends chapter ten. We're yeah, mo- we uh, and and well, I don't. I mean, we're we're forty four minutes, um, but something to talk about here. You know, I mean, this is and we we you know we'll get into Central Africa here next. It's it looks like, but 
you know, it's always fine minerals, fine minerals, fine minerals in Africa. And when they do make these advancements that drive away just pure unbridled colonialism and sending poor slaves down into diamond mines, uh, which is always, you know, slowly motivated away. Again, De Beers publishing the people love real diamonds or whatever. <coughs> because, you know, even if they have, as they mentioned in this chapter, since the 60s, artificial diamonds of their own, you see how much competition they have for that versus you see how much they dominate diamond mining when they get to hold their monopoly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it it's something that even when it goes away from it and you get to free the labor, Africans then just get left behind. Yeah. So it's get exploited and destroyed and pushed backwards instead of forwards or have all of those effects from being pushed backwards instead of forwards, instead of being able to develop, being actively destroyed for profit. Um, just all the ramifications for that and then just, just have the plug pulled. And that's assuming the plug is even pulled. Even as, as these technologies happen and these better products come out, is it still more profitable to exploit the shit out of you? Yeah. All right. Well, I would say we should end it, but no, we are not going to give you a short episode this week. We are going to push mm. through. So we are going to start the beginning of chapter 11, uh, mining interests in Central Africa. David, do you want to start us off on mining interests in Central Africa? Sure, sure. If we examine the intricacies of the Anglo-American extension through the exploitation of Africa's raw materials, we find its strong arm holding down the wealth of Rhodesia, South Africa, and Southwest Africa, both through direct holdings as well as through those of American Inglehard and Kennecott Copper Associates and the British South African Company Limited. The British South Africa Co- Company was a creation of Cecil Rhodes' genius and empire building. Oh, Jesus. Watching the scram... Yeah, I know. And and we all know Cecil Rhodes is is just a bad, horrible fucking human being. Yep. Um, watching the scramble for lands in Ro- South Africa in the early 1890s, he decided that unless he got in quickly, other European adventurers would take up large tracts of valuable country ruled by savage native chiefs in interior of Africa. That is a very disgusting quote by Rhodes, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, using his notorious agents, Rudd, Maguire, Rochford, and Thompson, war, provo- war was provoked between the Metabales of what is now known as Rhodesia and their chief, Lobu Lo Banguela. Troops of the South African Company, which was granted a royal charter in... That's not a number. <laughs> yeah. It's... It, it's, 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 it's supposed to be either 1689, 1658, or 1659. They were granted six, a royal charter at some point. We're going to go with 1689. Century. We're going with 1689. Yeah. There we go. Went ostensibly to the support of the chief against his people. This trick of Rhodes, described by certain historians as ardrit handling, secured the company a concession to work in mineral rights in the vast expanse of the land that now forms the whole of Rhodesia. When Lobanguela woke up to the bitter realization of the trickery that had divested him and his people of the rights of their own land, he petitioned Queen Victoria as follows. Some time ago, a party of men came to my country, the principal one appearing to be a man named Rudd. They asked me for a place to dig gold, and they said they would give me certain things for the right to do so. I told them to bring what they would give, and I would then show them where what I would give. A document was written and presented to me for signature. I asked what it contained, and was told that it were in my words and the words of these men. I put it in my hand to it. About three months afterward, I heard from other sources that I had given by that document the right of all minerals of my country. I called a meeting of my in- 
in Dunas and also of the white men and demanded a copy of the document. It was proved to me that I had signed away the mineral rights of my whole country to one Rudd and his friends. I have since had a meeting with my Indunas, and they will not recognize the paper as it contains neither my words nor the words of those who got it. After the meeting, I demanded that the original document be returned to me. It has not come yet, although it is two months since, and they promised to bring it back soon. The men of the party who were in my country at the time were told to remain until the document was brought back. One of them, McGuire, has now left without my knowledge and against my orders. I write to you that you may know the truth about this and may not be deceived. With renewed and cordial greetings, Lobanguela. I'm who sure that went days, over well. I'm sure that went swimmingly yeah, and everything. Again, again, this is normal. I mean, he's he's asking for like common, you know, uh, common recognition of laws. Like I was tricked. This is not my country's laws. This is common diplomacy. He's asking essentially for extradition of McGuire, right, mm-hmm. back to his country, and 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 that's not going to happen. No. These colonial powers are totally on the on the conniving, lying colonizer side. <laughs> Who in those days gave back land flinched by whatever means from savage native chiefs, and who today will give them back to the people for whom they were taken, unless the people insist on their return by their determined and united will expressed by union government. I also like, again, that the the really uh, calling back on that grotesque uh, word by Rhodes of savage native chiefs when he was being diplomatic to the queen herself, you know. At the close of the 19th century, Rhodes, dreaming of a Cape to Cairo empire, pushed from (laughs) Matabalela land into Mashanaland, across the Zambesi, into the country now called Zambia. Thus, he drove a wedge between the Portuguese colonies of Mozambique and Angola. All of this was done with the buccaneers of his South Africa company, which had received three supplementary charters since the initial one was granted in 1889. Originally, the company had administrative rights over territory in southern Africa, lying to the north of the Bequanaland, to the north and west of Transvaal and the west of Portuguese East African. It is also it also had rights to extend the Cape Railway and telegraph systems northward to make concessions of mining, forest, or other rights, and much more besides. It is administrative and monopoly rights in northern and southern roads. Rhodesia were ceded to the British government only as late as 1923 to 24. Mineral rights in Rhodesia, however, were still retained as well as a half interest for 40 years and the next proceeds of the disposal of land in northwestern Rhodesia. In return, the British South Africa Company received a cash payment from the British government of 3.75 million pounds. The community the commutation of this half interest in the proceeds of land disposal was made in 1956 for the annual payment of 50,000 pounds for the remaining eight years run from 31 March 1957. A cash purchase of the mineral rights was made by the Southern Rhodesia government in 1933 for 2 million pounds, this time from African taxpayers' money. This still left the company with its mineral rights in northern Rhodesia, which, by arrangement, it is to enjoy until October 1st, 1986. However, since October 1st, 1949, it was paying to the government of northern Rhodesia 20% of the net revenue from these mineral rights, which some was regarded as an expense for the purpose of northern Rhodesian income tax. Furthermore, net revenue was defined as the profits of the company derived from mineral rights calculated in the same manner as for the purpose of northern Rhodesian income tax, i.e. after 
after expenses had been charged against it. The arrangement provided for not non-imposition of mineral royalties as such in northern Rhodesia, while Her Majesty's government undertook to secure, so far as possible, that any government which became responsible during the 37-year period, that is up to October 1st, 1986, for the administration of northern Rhodesia should be bound by these arrangements. The British South Africa Company, in spite of recent action taken by the government of Zambia to secure mineral rights, is still extremely powerful. It owns forest, agricultural estates, and real property in Zambia, Rhodesia, and Bukana land. It also has mineral rights in 16,000 square miles in Malawi territory. It formed Cecil Holdings Limited to acquire the whole share capital of British South Africa Company subsidiaries, with the exception of Rhodesia Railways Trust Limited. Another formation, British South Africa Investments Limited, acquired the greater part of the parent company's investments in 1958. Other subsidiaries include British South African Company Management Services Limited, British South Africa Citrus Products Limited, Charter Properties Private Limited, Indaba Investments Private Limited, Bait Holdings Private Limited, Jameson Development Holdings, Private Limited, and British South Africa Company Holdings, Limited, UK. I We were so caught up in mineral exploitation that I did not even realize that they were going to do citrus. Oh, yeah, baby. When the fuck did the oranges happen? Oh, the oranges are here. Oranges are here, and we're going, we're going hard for them. The British South Africa Company was divested of the greater part of its holdings in companies operating primarily in the Republic of South Africa by its participation in the 1961 exchange of shares with De Beers Investment Trust Limited. It still retains its holdings as 700,000 shares in Union Corporation Limited. The company's close association with Mr. Harry Oppenheimer and the Anglo-American Corporation and the Rhodesias is to be drawn tighter by means of a proposed share deal between them by which 1 to 2 mil- 1.2 million ordinary 10-shilling shares of Anglo-American will be exchanged for 2.5 million in $1 shares of New Rhodesia Investments Limited, a public company registered in Rhodesia and equally owned by Mr. Oppenheimer's Brent Hurst Investment Trust Party Limited and British South Africa's tributary Cecil Holdings. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we will end this one for the week. Uh, this has been, uh, a, I would say, I would say this has been an interesting couple chapters. This is, to me, the, I don't want to say the the nuts and bolts part, but this feels like the bolts of linen um, or or when Lenin went into all the different companies and what they owned and what they yeah, held. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what, what not, you get to because you it's gotten to a point where, and, it, and we're probably going to see a lot of this, right? He's describing what, I mean, important stuff about like what countries are exploited, how, what industries are doing it. But also because unfortunately the level of monopoly we're dealing with, right? When we talked about, what was the word where uh, directory? Directorial integration. Directorial interweaving. Directorial interweaving. Directorial interweaving. Because of directorial interweaving and monopoly, um, we're revisiting so many names, and there's so many of these like little interconnections to make this web of monopoly that – Basically, like you don't just bring up a company and then describe what happens. You bring up a company, you spend two pages basically going up the chain to who the parent company is and then back down to their 15 holdings and then across to the seven mm-hmm. other companies that 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 CEO is on the board of directors of. 
and then you describe what they've done. And so it's the point where there's still new information, there's still new stuff and, and ideas conveyed each chapter, but it doesn't feel like it because each new idea we bring up has to have an entire like formal listing laid out of like, you know, the table of contents of this company. Um, that, yeah. that, you know, it, because again, it's, it's all so interconnected and it's also vaguely interconnected of like 10% of this, 20% of this, this share, this subsidiary, this holdings on the board of director of this and this. And, and it's all like, you know, just all these little connections of the same people and the same web, but it's, it's dispersed out that it takes so long to explain each time. Exactly. And th- and it's intentional. It's oh, intentionally yeah, yeah. so it it takes a fucking book to it, explain where these people are all interconnected. Yeah, like it's that uh, opaque it, and that hard to, to it get It does through. two things. One, it keeps a very, very small oligarchy in power without giving clear targets to people unless how they control everything is explained. It makes it dull and difficult to explain when you do explain it to people, right? And it makes sure that as they're invested in all these ways and divested in all these ways and spread out on all these companies, if some shit happens and it does go under, right? Some country fights for its own independence. Some mines go under. Some laborers revolt. Um, some investment turns upside down. Whatever. That's one of 700 little connections and investment and they just pluck it off and make 10 more. You know, it's much easier to live as a hydra than it is to live as a target. Exactly. I learned that from the Disney movie Hercules. <laughs> um, that being said, uh, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. There are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us if you would like to do so. Uh, the first of which is through email. We are emailable at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, next way you can get a hold of us is on Twitter. Our, we, we exist on the Hell site despite our best intentions. And our Twitter handle is at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. Our DMs are open. Uh, beyond that, you can reach out to us for a more day-to-day experience in Discord. Our Discord server is the Mark's Madness Pod Discord. It is linked in our Twitter bio, or you can always email us for the link if you prefer not to engage with that fucking miserable excuse of a website. Um, that being said, uh, Discord is great. It's a good community. Book Club is getting ready to start back up again. I believe Lennon's What Is To Be Done is going to be the book of choice for this round of Book Club, If I if I saw the voting correctly. So again, another great uh, source for getting more, even more theory in, and more more opportunities great, to discuss with people. Great description of a vanguard party, and and uh, something we need to remember too. You know, Lenin Lenin was tactical and and brilliant at the time, and he was presented certain conditions, and so some stuff is always centered around his conditions. And he wrote what is to be done in 1905. So. Uh, I mean, what a perfect work for a discussion group, right? Because not only are you going to talk about how a Vanguard party ties in, but what he learned since then by the time it got to state and revenue, uh, and some of the language that'll talk about, you know, being, um, democratic socialists and you being like, that, that doesn't make any sense, but that's what they called themselves at the time before that was, you know, co-opted in people that tried to elect their way to socialism, uh, long before there were Bolsheviks and Mensheviks and, and then Marxist Leninists. Everyone was going by democratic socialists because socialism was democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, or actually social Democrats is probably what they were saying at the time. Um, 
you know, and, and so great, great work, but also, you know, something to remind us too, um, in that work with the, the Vanguard party is, is, you know, one of the goals, right? I mean, this is what organizing does, um, kind of good lead into the disclaimer. You know, when we talk about organizing, right? Organizing is not there to be a charity and that doesn't mean charity is bad. I, th- I think people have just gotten so in love with the, the term mutual aid that they've forgotten there are other terms and other things that go into it. And so charity as a complex is terrible, right? It's these rich shit, it, the fucking Oppenheimers and, and mm-hmm. Morgans and whatever the fuck giving back and Cecil feeling good Rose. about themselves. Cecil Rhodes has is Cecil who the Rhodes, Rhodes yeah. is who the Rhodes Scholarship is named after. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so these charities, they're always giving back, they're doing good, but it's just a giant marketing publicity stunt where they give a fraction of what they've taken away from people, and they're in control of how that fraction gets distributed rather than the people. So even when you're receiving that, you're not in control of that like you would be if they just didn't take that wealth in the first place. So charity as a complex is destructive, and it just shirks off responsibility and political awareness. It's a horrible, horrible thing. That doesn't mean charity as an individual is bad, right? Right. If like someone is out there panhandling, you don't have to be able to walk up with a pre-made organization and be like, Tuesday's our day. Here's our stuff. Or like, you know, if you pass them and you don't have an org or it's Monday, be like, yeah, sorry, tough. That's not what our org does. Like if you have 20 bucks in your pocket, give them 20 bucks. That's charity. It's okay if it's not mutual aid. That's charity. But that's good. That's good to do. Do that. Yes. yes. And and then when your org does it and doesn't expect anything back, that's aid. Okay. And aid is good. Your org should be doing aid because there are some times where mutual aid is not appropriate because the people you're giving to can't give something back to your org yet. And you need to give them stuff. You need to build those relationships and take care of the people. And that's what you need to be doing. And then when you build a system of aid between people that doesn't necessarily have, you know, a larger amount to give to someone who needs, but rather a bunch of people in needs exchanging skills, doing things like community gardens, right? Doing things um, like, you know, using working skills to build shelters, including, you know, some of the homeless people maybe building into the shelter, uh, you know, things like that. That's mutual aid and that's a direct political action. And mutual aid is how you build the systems that we'd be able to have as alternate systems that can, you know, have some groundwork laid out as a functionary system to replace the existing system. So you have to be doing that political work. So an organization is to show the flaws, show how the system is broken, and show how the system is broken by replacing it. And mutual aid is important. But that doesn't mean that every time you do aid or charity, you have to call it mutual aid when it's not mutual aid. We are to educate people politically. And it's okay to do other good things. Yes. Just because we're pushing back on the charity, charitable industrial complex doesn't mean we also can't do other acts of aid and name what they are properly. <laughs> yes. That being said, it is time for the discla- after that disclaimer, it's time for disclaimer number 2. David, disclaim. Yes. Sure. So, uh Nathan came up to me one day and uh was like, "Hey, I want to read Capital." And that's a long book and that's a tough read and you've read it before, so maybe you can help. And that's good because anytime we're reading theory, like we just talked about with what is to be done, uh, anytime you're reading any book of history, anything like that, you want to be able to talk to each other. You want to be able to d- describe, you know, terms, context, why, you know, some words like when, Nate, when Lenin is talking about, oh, social Democrats, he's not talking about social Democrats like you think of them today. You need to be able to understand that. You need to be able to couch that into the conditions and what they were dealing with at the time and what they mean. So 
you can better understand the work. You also need to be able to tie it back to yourself today. And you need to realize that you're not the only perspective in this room. And everybody's perspective is going to help you politically understand every everything you're supposed to be getting out of that work to organize around. Um, so hopefully what we've wanted since the beginning when we said, what the hell, we'll record it because two people's not a huge discussion group. And maybe we can at least give that perspective to more people. And lo and behold, there's a few thousand of us now, and that's terrific. Um what we've wanted since the beginning of that is that hopefully you're out there in your groups, you're in there, you're in your parties and you're doing your organizing and you're reading these works along with us. And we could be another voice in that group, another point of context, another point of input, someone else to say something to help you better understand and retain it and personalize it. Um, let's say that that's not happening. Let's say your group's reading something shorter or reading something more directly related to something they're organizing around now or reading these works on a completely different pace and you're reading it on your own and then just listening to us to be that reading group. Hopefully we can be that reading group and that discussion group and help you understand and soak in those works. And let's say that's not happening. Let's say like, you know, you're struggling to read it on your own and we're doing like this where we're more of an enhanced ebook and we're reading it word for word or we do one of the works like we've done uh, with imperialism or capital uh, where we summarize it more. Whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want these works out there guiding your actions. And anytime theory politically guides political action toward revolution, it's something called praxis. And praxis, by definition, of course, can't exist without theory because it is theory in action. And theory without praxis is completely useless. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.